0: Good morning, wow, it's good to be back after five weeks in Ireland, it's a lot of fun being home as well. Um, Oh wow, still Christmassy, do I sound incredibly echoey? Boom, sounds crazy to me, sounds kind of cool, I wish I sounded like this in everyday life. Anyway, um, what I want to talk to you about today, I had two options. I was either going to talk about the difference between peeing in a pool or peeing into a pool, uh, which I'll leave for another week, but there is an interesting difference, um, or talk about this fable by Aesop, and so I went for that. Um, Simone Vey, in her book Gravity and Grace, asked a question, and actually only this morning did I work out that she was probably referring to that fable that you just heard. She said, what does the miser lose when he loses his fortune? What does the miser lose when he loses his fortune? Uh, It's an interesting riddle. And I think if you understand this riddle, you can begin to understand what it might mean to lead um, a rich and deep life. So I'm going to unpack it a little bit. There's a lot uh, in the riddle, but I'm going to try to unpack it. And uh, the first thing we have to think about is, OK, let's imagine this miser. Obviously, the stereotypical example of a miser is someone who, you know, some grumpy old guy, bad relationships, lives in poverty, has a fortune that he never touches. So when this money gets robbed, in a sense, he loses nothing because he was never going to use it. So of course, he loses the money, but he doesn't, nothing changes in his, his actual world. Um, but he loses something because he's distraught. He's tearing his hair out. What is it? In a, in a way, you could say that what he has lost is the material support that props up and protects him from looking at his life. Right? He has an object that he uses in order to protect himself from experiencing the life that he lives. As long as he has this magical object, the money, he can somehow protect himself from looking at the terrible life that he's leading, the bad relationships, the bad family stuff, all of that. As long as he has that money, it acts as this strange, magical talisman, this protective force. Uh, Karl Marx called this a fetish. A fetish object is an object that you know is not magical, but you treat it as if it is. Now, this is fascinating because uh, Nietzsche said something similar. Um, the common critique that you will hear from, you know, say, say, new atheism or some rationalist approach is that people have magical thinking. People think there's all sorts of crazy angels and demons and various things in the world, right? But underneath, everything is rational makes sense, logical, etc. The 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 real world is is not some mythical magical place. But interestingly, both Nietzsche and Marx say it's the opposite way around, right? They say that for most of us today, um, we think that the world isn't magical or mystical, but we treat it as if it is. So for Marx, money is a fetish. This is why, if you read Marx, you'll you'll see that. You know you think of him as the arc kind of a rationalist philosopher but he's always talking about spooks specters ghosts and vampires right and he's saying that that money is supernatural it's magical right now he says we don't think it's magical none of us are dumb enough to think that money's magical <laughs> but we treat it as if it is we think that it is something that will protect us from death from despair, from the difficult things in our lives. If only we had enough money, everything would be wonderful. That's magical. Money is a magical thing, but of course not not intellectually. You see, in, in philosophy, there is this ancient distinction between the objective world, the world that is there whether we're there or not, and our subjective experience of the world. So most of us think in those terms, there is the objective world and then there's our subjective experience of the world. But in uh, psychoanalytic thinking, uh, there's another distinction to be made, a more important one. There is a difference between our subjective experience of the world and our subjective interpretation of our subjective experience of the world. And I'll explain that, that's very, very important. So there's our subjective experience of the world and there's our subjective interpretation of our subjective experience of the world. So what happens is you experience money as magical, but you interpret it as just a normal thing that's not really that special. You interpret, like for example, obsessive behaviour, you're touching taps a certain amount of times now, you know that touching the taps isn't magical, but you treat it as if it is, right? Or, or uh, you don't believe in ghosts. Obviously, I've talked about this before. The last talk I gave, we talked about this very subject. You don't believe in ghosts until it's late at night and the lights are out, and then you think there's something under your bed, right? You don't believe there's ghosts. You're like, of course there's no ghosts in the world until the lights are out. You subjectively experience the world and your house is full of goblins and ghosts and murderers, right? but you don't think you do. And yet, materially, that's how you interact with the world. Or your duvet cover is a magical shield that will protect you from a murderer. You think there's someone in the house, so you hide under the duvet cover. right? Because that duvet cover will either make you invisible or will protect you from a knife attack or a gunshot or something like that. Now again, you don't believe that the duvet cover is a magical shield, a Harry Potter invisible cloak but you act as if it is. You you subjectively engage in the world as if it's magical. And so we live in this really strange thing. As I say, Nietzsche turns it on its head. No, 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 we're, we all think we're rational beings to a certain extent, and yet we treat fame or money or... Uh, duvet covers or something as magical, or we think that we have to tidy our house before we go out because otherwise something terrible will happen. Right? Not all of us, some people do that, they, 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 the house has to be perfect, because weirdly if it's not and we go out, something awful will occur. Again, the person doesn't think that, they don't think that cleaning the house will do anything. experience. A a, a good idea or a good example of a fetish object is a a teddy bear with a child. Teddy bear is this object the child has and while the the teddy bear is in the child's hands, the child might be able to go into a room full of strangers and talk to adults. But when you take the teddy away, the child gets scared. Now what's important to to see in that example is that the child does not get any new information about the environment they're in. They don't learn anything new. What happens is an object that is protecting them from the subjective experience of what they know is taken away. So the teddy bear acts as a protection, a material protection that prevents the child from experiencing the trauma of being in a room full of people that that child doesn't know. Um, now, of course, that's fine, it's fine for that, but, but over time you have to kind of get rid of these objects. I mean, for one basic reason is you can't bring a teddy bear into work, you look a bit weird, right? So, um, parents help their child, you know, get rid of their security blanket or their teddy bear by maybe putting a security blanket in the washing machine sometimes, you know, getting the kid away from this object that, that protects them from experiencing their life. And and sometimes, of course, the more someone has a security blanket, the more someone has a fetish object. Um, The more there's something that's not going on in their life that's good, something is wrong, and this protects them from seeing it. Just the miser is the perfect example. The miser is the person who lives in poverty and squalor, um, who's a complete loner and isolated. But the fetish object of the money stops them from embracing and looking at that in their lives. So in the same way, a child might be holding on to some sort of object because actually there's some problem in the family. The father is always away, and mother and father are always arguing, or whatever it is, there's something that the child is trying to protect themselves from. And so and instead of trying to just take away the object, what you try to do is discover what lies behind the object, what is the object protecting the child from, and as you begin to look at that, the child will be able to you know, eventually let go of the fetish object. But we often have these objects. Uh, I think, you know, you've heard me say before, LA for me is one of the most religious places I've ever seen, and I'm from Ireland, right? You know? um, some famous historian said, you know, if, if religion is an opiate, the Irish are addicts, right? Because, you know, there's churches in every corner. But, but I think LA is very religious. And, of course, you probably know why I think that if you've heard me talk. One of the reasons is because a lot of religion is about promising wholeness and satisfaction. And in LA, every corner has someone promising wholeness and satisfaction. Take ayahuasca or you know, do a yoga thing or, or make enough money or look the right way or have the right products and you'll be happy, whole and complete. It's a very religious <laughs> sentiment, a form of heaven. Um, and I've critiqued that many times. But another reason why I say that LA, I think, is a magical place is because it's full of fetish objects and it's the same thing. These objects, these things that we think will make us whole and complete, will, will, like so many people run to LA, so many of us have come to LA from other places. Sometimes running away from or escaping difficult family past, difficult religious background, whatever it is, and people find themselves here, and the magical object might be to be a great actor, you know, to, to, to be famous or something like that. And that can, for a short time, protect us from really working through what's going on in our lives. And two terrible things can happen, by the way, with magical objects. One is you lose your magical object, when you lose your magical object, like the miser, now technically you lose something that doesn't exist, which is important. But but you lose your magical object, like for example, you just don't make it; it doesn't work. You just have to give up on that dream. Then you're confronted with your life. That's a failure. You failed. You failed to get the magical object. But it's a, there's a success in that failure, or you can turn that failure into a success because at that point you can go. OK, maybe I need to work through some things. The other disaster is that you get the magical object. right? The, the miser goes out and spends the money. And the problem with getting the magical object is you realize it's not magical. It doesn't work. You get the money, you get the fame, you get the place, you, you do whatever. You get to seventh dan yoga teacher, whatever it is. right? And then you go, oh, it didn't really work. So that's a trauma, that's the failure in success um, but again there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity to go okay maybe I need to look at some things that I've closed the door to. Uh, you know that example I used last time I was speaking where we can be standing here and beside us is this trap door and in the trap door there's, there's these tentacles and horrible things and monsters all in there. and. And you go to a therapist maybe because you're like I'm really close to being pulled into that dark hole of monsters and goblins and horrible things and I need you to help me avoid that. And then sadly you discover with, a, with good therapy is that the therapist is there to push you in. To the hole, you know, to go, there you go, I'm here to ensure that you go in there, right, um, which is terrifying, and if you ever knew that before you went into therapy, you'd never go into therapy, you'd go like, I, you know, your, your, your whole job is to take me away from that horrible place, not push me in, um, but in that place there's healing, you know, so, uh, why was I saying that, I lose my way, this is also keeps you listening to me, because you, sometimes you have to help me, Well exactly there. You're listening. Gold star for you. Get the hymn book at the end of this. Um, yeah. So these are two. Now, and by the way, it's not just individuals. who have this whole, and um, there's a political dimension to this. I mean, I'm not from America, so I can probably say this. Like, from the outside, you guys, when it comes to politics, oh my goodness. There's so many things I could say. But but one is, you know, like Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, all seem to be magical objects sometimes. You know, they, they, they become, because all of us, again, rationally kind of know that you can't really do very much in politics. You know, you come president and basically you're so many structures in place that will mean that basically it's the corporations will always win out and everything. I mean, Obama didn't even close Guantanamo Bay and I remember him saying that was his like, I think it was basically his number one thing he was going to do um, and he wasn't able to do it. So we kind of most of us probably think, know that and yet strangely we were sometimes put these people up as magical objects that will somehow change everything, make everything good or destroy everything and it's not all of it, but but you see this politically sometimes we make you know political figures into magical objects, these objects that are just going to fix it all and then when you lose your magical object it's traumatic but it's also traumatic when you get your magical object. So maybe, you know, some people, Hillary Clinton was the magical object and there's devastation. For some people, Donald Trump's the magical object and that will be devastating as well. Um, So, you know, it's like, we're all screwed. Um, but, But the funny thing is these are also opportunities for us to stop engaging in magical thinking or stop believing in magical objects and start to try to look at what's going on beneath. Um, now, one of the few things that we all know about Marx, I know Marx is not as big a figure in America than, than, than in Europe, but everybody knows, he said, religion is the opiate of the people, right? Which is from um, his introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. So just note that down. <laughs> um, but that's where he says, the beginning of all critique is a critique of religion, and he says religion is the opiate of the people. Now, in this phrase, he goes on to say after that, he says, religion is the heart of a heartless world. It's the soul of a soulless condition. Right? So op- religion is the opiate of the people, which is a painkiller. Religion is a type of painkiller. Why do you take a painkiller? Because you're in pain, because you're suffering. Right? And he then he says, and it's the heart of a heartless world. In other words, uh, th- the world is such a painful, And cynical and horrible place at times religion can help us I don't know find you know express something beautiful it's it's the heart it's like the beautiful things you hear in religion this this beautiful world that maybe is to come or whatever it is it's the heart of a heartless world the soul of a soulless condition that's not very negative at all it's actually very beautiful then he says it's the imaginary flowers on the chains of our oppression. The imaginary flowers on the chains of our oppression. And so, what he means by that is these are imaginary flowers, they are invisible, right? But strangely, we see them, they cover over our real oppressions and our real sufferings. This is religion does. So, think of it like the miser the miser's money is the invisible flowers in the chains of his oppression. He's, having, he's living a crap life, terrible house, no, say, terrible relationships, that stereotypical miser. But, but this money acts as invisible flowers. It is the expression of a real suffering. right? He's, there's a real pain, but he's put that suffering into this magical object, and that magical object somehow protects him, but doesn't get him out of things. And then Marx says, we must get rid of the imaginary flowers not so that we see the chains and despair, but so that we might break the chains and pick living flowers. So he says that basically the first step is to take away the imaginary flowers, take away the magical objects, look at our lives politically or individually, look at our relationships, all of that, look at it. See how terrible some of those things might be, it depends where you are in your life or what's going on, but for some of us there's things that are oppressive in our, definitely in our culture, some of us in our relationships, some of us in our individual lives. We get rid of the magical object so that we see what they cover over. Not so that we despair, but so that we can break those chains, i.e. do something about it, change that job, change the relationship, work through our relationship with our parents, whether alive or dead, Um, do that work and then pick living flowers. Anna Freud has said once, In your dreams you can cook the perfect omelette, but you can't eat it. That's very good. In your dreams you can cook the perfect omelette, but you cannot eat it. Uh, And Hegel, I think, I think it was Hegel, he he had this little parable about a bird, this beautiful bird that stayed on the ground, and she imagined how high she could fly, and how fast she would be able to fly, if only the wind didn't exist, with all of its resistances, with all of its pulls. but never once did this bird realise that it was the wind that would allow her to fly. The magical object will always be better than real life. Imaginary flowers will be more beautiful than real flowers. They'll smell better, they'll look better, but you can't appreciate them. You can't hold them in your hands. In a similar way, the problem with magical objects is not that they aren't magical, it's not that they aren't beautiful, it's not that they kind of aren't good, but they're not real. They cover over things and actually a better life. A better life is where we get rid of those, look at the difficult things in our lives and in our community and work to make those things better. And that's a tougher type of life. It's a real type of life with real sufferings, real joys, real struggles, real losses, real victories. It's a good news that life is a bit shit. Doesn't sound like good news. Like the good news of the magical object is life is beautiful, life is wonderful. You can have it. Just come to the front and grasp it. That sounds like good news, but that's terrible news, because the magical object never works. Whatever you think it is that will make you happy, whole, and complete will disappoint you. You'll, it'll it'll crumble in your hands. It's fool's gold. Fool's gold. Obviously, is, is you know, like in Ireland, there's a thing that leprechauns or you know, hide their gold, but it's actually fool's gold. And so if you ever find it, you think you're rich, but it's nothing. And um, I was always told when I was a kid that that rainbows, well, yes, I think, because where do they hide their gold? At the end of the rainbow, right? So my parents would tell me that all of the street works that were going on was always like these people looking for leprechaun gold. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's where a, that's where a, a rainbow stopped. And so there, and there I would shout out the window, it's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. Don't, don't bother, right? Um, but yeah, so that's the thing. Is that you think it's going to be real good. You do all of that work and then it, it doesn't work. It's terrible. The good news is life's a bit shit and you don't have the answers. You go like, that doesn't sound like good news. <laughs> but it is great news. If you embrace that, that's like taking the imaginary flowers off and going, life is difficult. Life is, for all of us, imagine we heard the stories of everybody in this room. The things that we've gone through. The battles we fought. Right now, the things that are happening. I look out and I'm like, how did you get here today? Some of you, I know a little bit about what you're going through. I'm surprised you can get out of bed. I'm surprised you can come here and listen to me. It's amazing. It's amazing we get anything done. <laughs> um, there's so much pain. And sometimes we need our magical objects to get us through. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is when we hold on to them so tightly, then we never can make real changes. We never look at the real troubles that we're facing. We're never able to break those chains and find ways to pick living living flowers. Now, communities like this, I think, can operate in one of two ways. Communities, religious communities, can be places that act like magical objects. You come here to hear that everything's great. You have the answers. We have it all. It's going to be wonderful. you know like I've said before it's like it's like the socially uh, acceptable form of getting drunk on a Saturday night so you either get drunk on a Saturday night and have a great time and pretend you're having fun um, or you on a Sunday morning go to this a church and you know sing all the songs but then the next day you know you have to face your real life so you have to keep coming back people are addicted to church people go every week I swear to you I've seen it I have seen it every week and you know how terrible it is God right it's like um. So it's this, it's this kind, and that's why Nietzsche said like religion and alcohol for him were kind of the same thing because at their worst they both, they both cover over our pain and our suffering, which is fine, but it comes back, the return of the repressed. Whatever you repressed always returns, and it often returns in your body. It doesn't return in your mind; it returns in your body. You know, ah, oh, migraines or bad backs or you know whatever. It returns, um, but. I'm Irish so I've got a good thing to say about alcohol as well, don't worry, right? Um, Alcohol can also be a wonderful way of having a drink and talking about your problems and talking about your life. You know, the difference between a sports bar and an Irish pub often is a sports bar you go to drink and forget and repress. But a good Irish pub, you go, you have a drink and you talk about your week with your friends until they're sick of listening to you. You talk about your relationships and the thing is If you go to a sports bar or something like that, a nightclub, um, they seem like a really happy place until about 2 in the morning and then they're just terrible, right? Nowhere worse to be than a nightclub at 2am, right? Where all these people are like frantically having a good time but it's like, oh, I know. I'm just going to turn on the lights and turn off the music and we're all just going to look at each other just for five seconds and then we'll all be crying, right? (laughs) It's like we're all... We're all pretending to some god in the sky that we're having a good time. It's great, it's great. I'm having a good time, a good time. But it's terrible. It's depressing. It smells of vomit. It's it's urine, and it's terrible. Um, and that's just me. Uh, so, uh, but then you you go to an Irish pub. nowhere better than being in an Irish pub at two in the morning, right? They're playing their music. They've got their instruments. out, Everybody's. It's 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 all generations. It's fun, and. The difference is probably at at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock you've been sitting there talking about your week, talking about your life, talking about your relationships. By 2 in the morning you're all singing together, having a good time. A church can be like going and getting drunk and repressing the suffering, but a space like this can be a desert in the oasis of our lives. This is why I believe in things like this. This is why I actually believe in this space. Because you go like, why would people, why would we come to this? It's not that great, you know, it's not brilliant. It's like, why do we come? I think there's a number of reasons and one of them is actually to confront our magical objects, to confront the things that we use to protect ourselves from looking at the difficult things in our lives and in our relationships. We come to sober up for a minute because that's the crazy drunk place LA, my goodness, That's that's the oasis, the oasis that's crazy, always things to do, so much noise, this is the desert and we just we need a desert-like space where we can ask ourselves, am I running from anything? Am I protecting myself from fixing relationships with people, the people I love? Am I stopping myself from looking at what I really should be doing in my community that might be more enriching, more life-giving? Um, what are the things in my life, whether it's a relationship, because fetish objects, by the way, might be a letter. It might be a letter from an ex that you carry with you. You know it's not magical, but you treat it as if it is. But it might be the thing that's stopping you from moving on in your life. And sometimes if that letter gets destroyed, you are destroyed. Or a, a lock of hair from someone. Whatever. Sometimes people don't cry whenever someone dies, but they break down whenever the room that that person belonged to when they eventually start to take it apart. That's when they, they cry. right? Because you cannot mourn because it's just too painful, too painful. But the room somehow protects you from that but eventually you have to take the room apart. Say it's your son or your daughter who's passed away. And that can be the place where whoa, you have to mourn. It comes to you. And it's, it's fine to keep the room the way it is. And there's a point when you have to take it apart. Begin to do the work of mourning. The work of mourning is the work of letting something go so that it can stay with you. Because you know in graveyards it says, gone but not forgotten. It's a beautiful phrase, but most often um, we do the opposite. Forgotten but not gone. We try to forget the pain. We try and forget the suffering, the loss of someone. We try to forget through work, frantic work, through music, through whatever, through drinking, through drugs, we try to forget. So it's not gone. It's right there, this rock that's inside you, eating you away, so the moment you stop, you break down. You can't go to sleep without listening to something because you cannot bear to be silent because it's there. Whereas mourning allows you to remember so that you can let that go, and in doing that it becomes something positive in your life. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but what I want to do then is say, if this is a space where we can lower our defence mechanisms, look at our lives, ask ourselves what are our magical objects, is there anything I use that protects me from looking at things I really need to sort out or stopping me moving on in my life in a good way? Is there, you know, some imaginary omelette in my life that I'm so pursuing that it means I can't enjoy the real things in life, which are never as perfect, but are actually much more sustaining? So we can ask ourselves, what what is that in my life? Or you can ask, what is that politically at the moment? What is that in our culture? What are the magical objects that are preventing us from embracing the world, embracing our lives, making real changes? So just take a little moment. Just close your eyes, maybe. Take a second. And just see if anything comes to mind. Money, fame, past relationship. some object, something, and ask yourself, what's it covering over? Is there anything that it's covering over that that is protecting you from realizing that your life is in some poverty, and that if you could face that, you would be able to break those chains and maybe pick living flowers, have a richer life. There's not much more we can do today. <laughs> so the next stage is get it. know. just be aware of what your magical objects are, and over time, as we are aware of those things, as we come here week in and week out, and we try to allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves, uh, you know, we can gradually begin to let those things go, so that we can pick living flowers. Okay, there you go. Um, you know, we, we, end, we always end with that ritual thing. I should do that, or is it? Oh, yo, so can you do all of that stuff? Because I, yeah, yeah. No, please, you do it. Thank you.